0: Hello, hello. Back with another episode of Blender Kitchen. Thanks for tuning in guys. Um, look took a look at my metrics last week and was so excited to see that I gained some new listeners. So, hello, welcome, thank you for staying. Um, this episode is gonna sound a tad familiar. Um, basically now that I've had the time to really flesh out the research, I went and re-recorded the historical part of the wine episode that I did with Jameson. Um, this episode is really just going to focus on the history for wine choices and differences in taste and what exactly terroir ter- ter- means, um, check out, uh, the it's you can't sip with us (laughs) with Jameson um no announcements so let's just dive right in so wine is the age old drink it's literally from what we can tell um what historical records we have it's been a drink since the beginning of time um, it wasn't always a drink. Some Before it was a drink, uh, people were just eating wild grapes as they came across them. Um, the first wine was probably made by accident. Probably just the weight of uh, berries together in a bag squished on each other, made some juice. The bag would have probably been something made of an animal bladder. The leftover rennet in the animal bladder would have begun would have begun to ferment the juice thus creating the first wine. Um, it's gotten way more complicated and fancy since then and I'm going to th- create a nice little graphic and throw that up on Instagram and the website because um, I thought that was honestly it was just fascinating and there's so many little facets but I'm getting ahead of myself so, there are two main types of, um, main strains of wine that we're going to be discussing in this episode. That is the Vitis vinifera and the Vitis labrusca. The Vitis labrusca is um, what, f- for simplicity's sake, we'll call the American grapevine, and the Vitis vinifera is what we'll call the European grapevine. Um, wild grapes and all, all those of the Vitus genus are wind pollinated and in addition have hermaphroditic flowers, so essentially they self-pollinate, which when you think about climate change is kind of heartening, I guess, because that means it'll be easier to recreate the pollination cycle of that particular plant should we need to this is we're not getting into climate change in this episode obviously a better way would be to save the pollinators but in 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 an instance where there were not enough or any pollinators it's glad to know that at least we would still have wine so moving on Wine has literally um, been around since the beginning of time, like I said. Uh, It was mostly as a food until that fateful hunt where fermented juice became the favorite of the masses. There are hundreds of varieties of Vitis vinifera, um... I don't even know where to start. Um, I guess start with the French regions, your Burgundies, your Boudoirs, your Beaujolais, your Champagne, uh, Pinot Grigio, Pinot Noir. The list is endless. And each one of those varieties has been well adapted to a specific type of growing condition. That's one of the beauties about the grapevine is that it adapts really quickly, fairly quickly, nature speaking, and really well to different growing seasons. There's wine growing in every single part of the world as we speak. Every single part. Isn't that crazy to think about? The most popular uh, variety of uh, wine of, let me try again. As we said earlier, the um, *Vitis vinifera*, or the European grape, is the most popular um, strain of grapevine being cultivated. But *Vitis labrusca* is not to be left behind. It's thought that *Vitis labrusca* was the first wild grape that Leaf Ericsson. Found or discovered or came across, um, on his first trip to America. For those of you who don't know, Leif Erikson was a Viking for, because that sounds cool. He's probably just a Norseman, but, like, Viking sounds so much cooler. Anyway, he landed around about, um, Maine, uh, or northern New England, um, and he's thought to be the first European on American soil. He named, the place that he landed, Vinland, and left. So, meanwhile, Vitus Vin- vinifera, the European grape uh, vine, begins a transformation. So, the earliest actual identifiable wine, as we know it today, um. From the Neolithic period was found in the Haji Firuz Tep. Tepi? Basically, the Zagros Mountains of Iran. Um, now, that's not to say there might not be earlier um, iterations of what we know as wine today, but one of the problems that paleontologists are they the ones that look for? Old artifacts? Where are those archaeologists? Anyway, one of the, the difficulties that face people who look for traces of ancient life, um, run into is that he is, is not kind to keeping artifacts well. Um, so it's v- probably very real that there was an earlier wine in the same region. But, you know, just time has not been kind so we may not know. So the earliest we know of is a wine from the Zagros Mountains. This wine has resonated and that basically proved a hypothesis, hypothesis that historians had that most wines of this time. Were resonated as a way of preserving it. In fact, we didn't really have a great way of preserving wine and keeping it from turning to vinegar until Louis Pasteur, but getting ahead of ourselves. So the first wine producers were in the area of Georgia, Turkey, Iran, Armenia, Azerbaijan. Um, the Trans Caucus region is what it's called. And it spread from there through trade, through religion, and through conquest to essentially the rest of the world. From there, it moved on to Asia Minor and Mesopotamia, and from there the Levant—that's uh, Israel, Jordan, Lebanon—and from there the Mediterranean and onward. Which is based the Mediterranean that we're referring to here is basically southeastern Europe. Really, it's. Super popular, and I cannot imagine why. Um, I'm just kidding. We all know why. It's delicious. It's fantastic. It's amazing. And when it first came out, it was really only for nobility and royalty. It was hugely important. Um, it marked every special occasion of royalty at first. And just looking throughout the the evidence in history, you just see it time and again. In about 3000 BC, some burial mounds in Georgia. When they got to them, silver-covered vine shoots in the burial mounds. There are Assyrian bas reliefs that show kings enjoying cups of wine under arches made from grapevines. Uh, the Sumerian Hammurabi Code, or Code of Hammurabi, which is one of which is thought to be one of the earliest sort of set-written codes of of law. Had pieces in it, paragraphs of it, dedicated to the running of wine shops. There are elaborate wine vessels used in Anatolian royal celebrations. Anatolia is the Turkish peninsula. There were silver drinking horns from the Hittites found that dated all the way back to 1600 BC. Tomb paintings found in egyptian tombs give us a good idea of what the ancient wine process looked like um which is how one that's literally like here is a history book and it lists everything that we have already figured like that's amazing in addition pharaoh's tombs were found to often include fully stocked wine cellars now, for those of you who don't know, when the Egyptians uh, buried their dead, most notably their dead of high rank, royalty, nobility, I believe priests as well, they were buried with symbols from the material world so that they would be plen- they would be uh, provided with plenty in the afterlife. They would have everything they needed to continue their ascension to godhood. And so that that ranged from delightfully quirky things like wine cellars fully stocked and the king's favorite meal laid out like a feast and then, you know, like less pleasant things like legions of surgeons also buried next to him. They may not have been dead at the time of burial. But this is supposed to be a break- from the roughness of the world right now so we're gonna bring it on back to the lighthearted. getting into uh, greek and roman literature wine is featured throughout the iliad and the odyssey it's offered to guests as a mark of uh, hospitality people are bribed with drunkenness um Wine is present at military and political summit meetings. In fact, the word symposium literally just means drinking together. Now, for those of you who don't know, I love a good cult. I think it's so fascinating how we as a society decide what is a cult and what is a religion. And so far, I would say the binding... Uh, tie is an inability to leave and also some kind of violence that makes it a cult and not just a religion but I digress so ancient Greece and ancient Rome had their cults the cult of Dionysus or the cult of Bacchus Dionysus and Bacchus are the same god his festivals revolved around death and rebirth and coincided with the end of the year grape harvest and the beginning of the year when you were finally able to drink the new wine that you had made at the end of the year. Um It originally, when it started, it was only young maidens who would perform these festivals, these rites and rituals of pa- um passage, Naked in the forest, um which I think you can extrapolate from there, like years of folklore about singing maidens who would drag you to your death um on on hallowed nights. Um, as the cult evolved, men were also allowed, and soon it just became uh, a symbol of living to the full exuberance that life has to offer, I think. For those of you who know what a bacchanalia is, you immediately have that, that image. For those of you who don't, a bacchanalia is basically a wild party. It's an all-night rager with plenty to drink. And it originated from the cult of Dionysus, or the cult of Bacchus. Wine then didn't look like what we how we drink it today. It still was grapes, it was still fermentation, but for one thing, it didn't last as long. It would go to vinegar very quickly. For another, they were actually usually so strong both in flavor and alcoholic content that they had to be diluted, and then they usually also had some kind of spice added. As we discussed in the aphrodisiac episode wine with honey was considered an aphrodisiac in greco-roman times so some specialties that we have now arose because of trying to meet a unique challenge we're going to specifically talk about port and madeira two different kinds of fortified wine from portugal now The main reason that these fortified wines came into being was because they needed to not turn to vinegar during the long time they were transported from the European continent to the American continent and then also they needed to not take on the taste of seawater that would soak into the wooden barrels that they were transported in. And so you have these two new wines in those days Port, and um, Madeira, which are just named for the places that they originated. Um, And you have people adding sugar, spices, uh, all sorts of things to help keep the wine's flavor, to not dilute it too much before people want it to be diluted. And it's actually still a european practice today to add water to your wine when you are out on the town for a night of drinking a you spend less money on wine and you're clear-headed for longer anyway so obviously now we don't we're not shipping wine by sea anymore honestly there's very little we ship by sea still um uh well that's a scratch that um i misspoke (laughs) i have no basis for that statement let's move on most importantly we're not sending wine on a three month long voyage on a wooden ship anymore (laughs) and yet we still have port and we still have Madeira. To adapt to this new technology time of making wine, makers of Port and of Madeira have come up with new ways of getting that still distinct flavor, that still essence of special fortified wine without, you know, the three-month time in sea. Ah, I wish I had poured a cup before I'd started recording. This is making me thirsty. So... Remember how we said that wine was spread throughout the world through trading, conquest, and religion? Well, that's also how wine began to be elevated. As Christianity, well, the information I found really focused on Christianity, but I don't see a reason why other religions where wine focused heavily would not have also brought, brought it with them as they went to new places. I digress. So monks, Catholicism. Monks were in charge of tending ancient vineyards, old-day vineyards, and because they spent so much time tending the vineyards, they developed the best ways to cultivate wine, the best ways to make these unique blends that we have today. Um, and yes, part of it's the soil, but a lot of um, you can have the best soil in the world and if you don't cultivate something properly it's still gonna taste terrible so they really refined these methods of cultivating wine when the Europeans came to America their vines came with them and were planted here um, and that's how we have Vitis vinifera in America which is more popular than Vitis labrusca um, Australia does not have a native wine vine wine grapevine all the vines in Australia are descendants from when Britain took over and created a penal colony. they said hey we just took an entire continent and made it a very giant jail and we're being very rude to the people that already live here but you know what would solve this wine so they planted their own wine vines Um, anyway, (laughs) as time and technology have gone on, we've gotten better and better and better at making and preserving wines. Now, you can choose from, you know, wine that comes from family that's been doing it for 300 years and it's very nuanced in flavor and delicious, or you can go to your grocery store and get a bottle of wine for $6 made from grapes that have only been fermenting for six weeks because that's the beauty of technology. Now, there is a huge debate about, is that really wine? Is it worth drinking? But we're not getting into the uh, esoterics of winemaking here. We're just dabbling in the history. So... We usually talk about genetically modified organisms in the foods that we discuss. Interesting fact, there are no genetically modified grapevines that are allowed for winemaking. And there's only a single strain of genetically modified yeast that's allowed to be used in the process. But that doesn't mean that wine has not had a helping hand. So let's disrupt. Let's discuss the Great Destroyer. Philoxera visastrix is a mold that affects only, that we know, Vitus vinifera. It is so devastating and so contagious that it basically wiped out all of the vineyards in France. A controversial decision was made to graft vitis vinifera vines onto vitis labrusca roots because they didn't see that the phylloxera visastrix affecting vitis labrusca vines and so they determined that this must be something that only affects vitis fitifera and if we put vitis labrusca roots in here then we won't have a problem with the vines rotting because labrusca is not susceptible to this. And that's the only thing that they could come up with to essentially save these vineyards. And that just had long-lasting, widespread effect throughout winemaking. It actually forever changed the face of winemaking. It led to the creation of the Appellation des Ruitains i I'm pretty sure that's still terrible French. Uh, the AOC. AOC in France sets strict guidelines for what wine can be called a wine from a specific region. For example, any Burgundy wine, according to France, must have been grown in Burgundy, France. Any Champagne must have been grown in Champagne, France. And actually, with Champagne, they will quickly sue an American winemaker. Um, for claiming that their wine is champagne and not a sparkling wine. Very, 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 very strict about quality control and what you can call what. And it comes from, well, if these vines are Vitis vinifera and also Vitus labrusca, how do you determine that the wine is quality and that it came from here and that it was you know cared for in our specific way and the answer was to have a strict board of what could be consider, considered a wine from a particular region um most of germany's vineyards remember we said wine grows everywhere um and it, there's a native wine grape vine for made used for making wine in every region except for Australia. And as you can imagine, most of Europe's were affected just throughout history. Germany, for example, had all of their vineyards destroyed in every single war that they have been in. Hundred Years' War, World War I, World War II, and yet they still have a beautiful tradition of winemaking. You know, you have your Rieslings, you have your ice vines. It's still this beautiful thing that has persevered through tragedy. But what it also did was, if there was a region that was just kind of making wine, they weren't uh, very committed to it, it was just something that some people did, what these wars and this rot devastation did was essentially wipe out winemaking in those areas, concentrating it in the popular places of Europe. Now, I know that I have heard so many things regarding wine. Wine is good for your health. Wine is bad for your health. Red wine is good for your health. Um, too much red wine is not good for your health. I would honestly say too much of anything is not good for your health. You know, um, Drink red wine before bed. Drink white wine before bed. Drink white wine You know, only in the summers. Uh, drink red wine to help your skin stay young. If you're pregnant, you can have a little bit of wine. Just all sorts of things and I'm not going to get too into this because Sawbones has an excellent episode on the medicinal properties of wine. But basically, this is not a new idea. We've been trying to use wine as a medicine since we invented it, and we've been using it for everything from compound fractures to hangover headaches. Really just across the board. Um, So, this episode is a bit of a doozy. I'ma pop out and get get a little bit of a refresher. You can pause it here and get a little bit of refresher, and then we'll come back and get into how it's made. Now, as you can imagine, the winemaking process is pretty complicated, and I've tried my best to boil it down into the most important parts. First, the grapes are picked when they're ready to be harvested. This varies depending on what kind of wine you're making. All of the grapes and the stems are put into a destemmer crusher. This separates the berries from the vine. Vine is a berry. Grapes, g- grapes are a berry. Whew! Grapes are a berry. So it separates the stems from the berries and slightly crushes the grapes just to get that juice-making process started. And then this is where things get tricky. For white wines, the juice from the crushed grapes is separated from the skins and then only the juice is fermented. Then it's strained and sent to barrels to continue to ferment. Then from barrels it's placed in bottles and then even that gets broken down further into is this a sparkling wine is this a flat wine sparkly wines undergo even longer fermentation with periodic rotating of the bottles to encourage a natural carbonation now reds you throw everything in there you crush both the skins and the fruit the meat of the fruit together and you ferment them all together red wine gets its color from the skin of of the grapes. But you want to have an even color, even flavor. You don't wanna leave the top kind of just drying out. So about every three days, the wine that has already been created, the juice that's been at the bottom of the vat is pumped up and poured over the top of the vat. So make sure, makes sure that all of the 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 unpleasant fruity bits, I guess we would think of them, to be equally saturated by juice. Then that's strained, and the juice is set to ferment. Um, before bottling, it's strained again to re- remove even more sediment, and then the sediment that's removed, you know, that the leftovers of stems and skins and seeds, those are. Pressed into a solid and sent to um, places that will distill them even further into alcohol like grappa and mock. So that's about it. Um you may be asking, how do you get a rose? Well, a rose is a white wine that's been allowed for the juice and the skins to come in contact for a very short period of time, and then it goes on to be processed like a white wine. I have worked up a real hunger. Just kidding, I haven't, but this recipe is delicious. This is a beautiful recipe to begin experimentation with because it's really, really forgiving. Um, I give some general measurements here, but really it's a one-to-one ratio. I only made six wine pops with this recipe, but if you wanted to make more or less, you could adjust the quantities. You'll need three-fourths cup rosé wine, one cup of granulated sugar, one and one-half cups red fruit juice blend. This is not like a cranberry juice type thing. You're going to want something with some heft to it, something like a smoothie, and one cup of sparkling wine. In a saucepan, heat the rose and the sugar together until the sugar has dissolved, then set aside to let it cool. Wine has a lower freeze point than water, and if you don't take the step, then you won't have wine popsicles you'll have a wine slushy because it won't freeze properly you have to burn the alcohol off then puree any combination of fruits that you'd like I used oranges and raspberries and cherries for mine but you could really use any fruit that you have that's kind of going squishy that is not really bad but you don't really want to eat it would be perfect um I mean really throw it out there uh I don't Know what a banana wine sickle would taste like, but if you try that, please let me know. Or you you could purchase a pre-made smoothie mix and use that as well. Honestly, this is super flexible. Once you've prepared your f- fruit puree, you're gonna add your rose simple syrup to it and mix together thoroughly. Pour in one cup of sparkling wine and mix again. Then you pour into your molds and allow it to sit overnight in the freezer. Amazing, fantastic. Now I cannot uh, give you a guarantee about the exact alcohol content in these so I would not recommend these for children or anyone else who's avoiding alcohol. Thanks so much for listening guys listen i know that uh, we're living in strange and unprecedented times and the world seems like a very scary place right now um i just want to remind you that it's okay in fact it's important to take time out from the harsh reality of the world And engage in something that you really enjoy doing. To step away from it, resurface, and breathe. Um, This is not going to be on the website, but you know what will be on the website? That recipe. And for those of you just joining, that website is blunderkitchen.com. I'm going to throw up the visual probably on the Instagram, and that's blunderkitchen on Instagram and that's all the social media we've got um you know I really appreciate your patronage and it just means so much that you guys want to hear what I have to say and I love doing it and I will do it as long as there's at least one other person listening so thank you thank you thank you